0: Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Palace of Thought, everyone. I am your gracious host, Edie Alexander. You are my guest. Please take a seat, plug in, and enjoy this conversation we are about to unfold for you. See, the Palace of Thought, we are a weekly podcast, and we make these shows for our leaders of thought. You know, there's leaders on the football field, there's leaders of corporations, and then there's us. People who are always seeing ahead of the curve. People like us who need that information, that fact-filled hamburger, essentially, to kind of form our souls. So, you know, we are not interested in the loudest headlines that come with the 24-hours news cycle. Rather, we prefer to bring a spotlight to the perspectives that are often hidden from the mainstream attention. We attack our episodes using a panel of thinkers and base our opinions on research, relevant literature, and personal experience to create a show that will no doubt leave you knowing more than you did before. The Palace of Thought is your microphone for the excluded. So, of that panel, um, I'm bringing back two familiar voices uh, for you for your ears today. Um, like always, we have a uh, Palace contributor, Henaid, uh here to help break down this topic. Say what up.
1: Hello, everyone. Glad to be back and uh, glad to, to be uh, doing another episode. That was very redundant, but we're here. <laughs> hey, man, that's
0: how we do. And then, of course, we are bringing our man, Carlos Giddens, back in.
2: Hey, how's it going? I'm happy to be here and I'm happy to get started. This is an interesting topic that I personally didn't know a lot about until doing some reading. So happy to be here.
0: And you don't know a lot about it, guest and listener, because I haven't introduced uh, what we're speaking on today. Um. And so without further ado, I just want to know that my thoughts have been centered on on Jeff Bezos lately. Maybe not him personally, but uh, the massive mountain of wealth in which he sits upon. He is the world's lone hecto billionaire, having been evaluated to be his net worth being worth upwards of one hundred and fifty billion dollars. So just for perspective, that's twice as much as Mark Zuckerberg and um, twice as much as Mark Zuckerberg. And he would need to spend roughly twenty eight million dollars a day just to keep from accumulating more wealth. Now, we can talk and we can debate and no one is saying he didn't earn that money the right way. He worked for it. He set up Amazon in the 90s just when it was a paper selling a book selling service. And it has blossomed into the giant, megalo, enormous, functioning monster of a of capital revenue generation that it is today. A lot of words I put in there, but I, I need y'all to understand just how much Amazon is uh, is really worth. And I think my thoughts have have, have been kind of looking downward on it. As he hasn't cheated, but if the game is rigged, what 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 role do we place on him? I mean, the game. That is capitalism, that is America That is the western way of philosophy Is um, you know You work hard, you uh Pull yourself up from the bootstraps And you can be anything In this world, there's some truth to that But when one makes A hundred and fifty Billion dollars How strong do you have to be to pull Yourself up by those bootstraps Now, my question It seems as if We live in a state, we live in a country, we live in a world in which corporations are valued more than the people who support those corporations. And that if we had a 100-floor skyscraper, no one gives a damn about the 99 floors beneath because at the top is the person where the king, where the president, where the CEO resides. And so as he sits atop of this long, long skyscraper, accumulating his wealth in which he's promised not to shed see bill gates has promised to give roughly 99 percent of his wealth away to foundations he supports he has his uh bill gates the gates foundation which gives um african-americans give people of need in um scholarships to attend colleges all throughout the world um we have amazon i mean not amazon we have mark zuckerberg him and his wife have created a foundation as well the wealth, there's, there's some type of social, you know, responsibility, I believe, that is invested. But Bezos doesn't have to do that. Why? Because it's policy. You know, we live in a world where policy, if it's legal in the books, it doesn't so much matter the moral ties or the moral lessons to be dug from them. So we have policy that enables someone like Bezos to be taxed less than his secretary, it was true for um, Warren Buffett, and it's true for him. See, the way the policy, the way taxation is set up, and we'll definitely jump into that later on, um, speaking with Collis a little bit, and when I have NIE jump on that, is, um, you know, it's supposed to be a progressive tax rate, right? The more money you accrue, the more, high, you know, higher taxes you're, you're liable to receive. Um, and that works for income generation, but someone like Bezos sitting on his mountain of wealth, can take a moderate salary, relatively. Um, let's say he just makes mm, a million, maybe 800000 a year, salary-wise as CEO. But because of the ability to evade taxes through capital gains, through shares that he owns of Amazon, a lot of that money is being hidden and protected at overseas in these tax havens. And because of that, the economic wealth gap has widened to levels we haven't seen since the recession now not all members of congress are just sitting watching this happen before our eyes there's always been one voice one or a couple voices who have always fought you know for the people to you know for corporations to uh, kind of be more considerate of their people just two weeks ago last week i believe we have bernie center sanders who along with another representative of congress Introduce the Bezos Act. Um, Kalis, what did you find when you um, looked into, you know, the details of the Bezos Act?
2: So generally, um, when you look at what politicians are up to, you kind of have to look at it both with their own incentives and what is actually written into the bill that they're trying to push forward. And Bernie Sanders is still um, not I wouldn't say reeling, but pushing the narrative that he was able to accumulate during the 2016 campaigns. Um, and that nature is of being extremely far left, and he is pushing for more symbolic, um, symbolic endeavors. So on the paper itself, this bill isn't something that would ever reach the floor and would never necessarily pass. Um, and while it is called the Bezos Act, it's not necessarily named after Bezos. It's acronym stands for Bad Employers by Zeroing Out Subsidies. So Bernie Sanders' point right here is that it isn't necessarily something that when put in place is going to increase wages one way or the next. It is something that symbolically represents to Bernie Sanders and to anyone who looks at this act as these large companies, not just Amazon specifically, but he also kind of speaks on the Walmart family, um, that the gap between these owners and management and the people that actually make their system run is too large. I don't think Bernie is necessarily saying that there shouldn't be a gap and that these, the employer working on the factory floor deserves to work for the same wages that the CEO does. However, to recognize a man as worth billions of dollars while someone is working for pretty low wages in pretty terrible conditions, that threw uh, a thorn in Bernie Sanders' pillow. So he wanted this to have Bezos' name attached to it so that people like us, would we'll discuss it, have that conversation about disparity in wages. Um, specifically, however, Bernie Sanders knows this isn't something that would go so far. He's he's waging a symbolic war against large companies like Amazon. Um, his other initiatives that he's really definitely pushing towards, which is a higher minimum wage. It doesn't necessarily apply because Walmart and Amazon generally pay their employees relatively well on a, on a scale comparatively to other companies. Um, Walmart Mm -hmm. boasts an $11 $11 an hour entry-level salary, which is relatively high compared to other um, companies. And generally, um, chains and big box stores generally pay higher wages than mom-and-pop retailers. So uh, Bernie Sanders is on an initiative elsewhere where he wants to raise the minimum wage. He's also on another initiative where he's aiming to get Medicare for all. So those two initiatives within themselves are counterproductive to this Bezos Act because essentially the Bezos act is trying to go dollar for dollar. If you get to pay your, uh, your employees, a dollar more, or in theory, you pay your, um, your employees more, they will then in turn retract fewer dollars from their benefits. And the technicalities of all of that just means, uh, that if we are giving our employees the right amount of money, then they can then go and, uh, purchase the, the helper, whatever
0: mm-hmm.
2: themselves. The only reason it doesn't actually work um, in the black and white is because the way our benefit systems are set up, whether it be Medicaid or Medicare, um, every extra dollar you earn isn't directly taken out of your benefits. You can continue to earn more money and your benefits, um, whether you contribute to them or not, aren't directly affected. So it would more or less incentivize people to work around those benefits to hire childless, single, um, employees, because now these benefits Mm. aren't extending to family members. So it would create perverse incentives. And in the reality of the scheme of politics today, this isn't an act that you will see someday in the future saying, Oh, the Bezos act created all this change. However, the fact that we're discussing it and the fact that it allows, I think you should keep this in mind as well. It allows Bernie To create his own bubble within the liberal party. Bernie's way over Mm -hmm. there trying to push for some of the hardest, most radical ideas. And that's how he's defining himself within the party. So keeps him relevant and it brings the the discussion to the table, um, allows people to discuss it. And I think that's what he's pushing for because it's a moral issue for him.
0: Yeah. And as I'm looking at it, um, totally, you know, just holistically you know, there's a reason why, you know, there's still value in it. And the fact that it brought me, it brought some of these issues to my attention, you know, and what I, um, as both you and Kyle have both, you know, um, touched upon, it didn't really have a chance to really reach the floor, but it did open up this little rabbit hole of mine where I started investigating what really goes on in those Amazon warehouses. Because on the, you know, on the surface level, you know, especially during the recession 2000 or, you know, post-recession um, you know, these factories were kind of like the, you know, re uh, reinvigorated, you know, like this new rust belt, you know, people who need factory jobs and lo and behold, here comes Amazon knocking at your city in uh, San Bernard, uh, San Bernardino, and they're going to build you a factory. And of course the initial response was, yes, you know, this type of, you know, blue collar work, you know, the region, maybe the country has, has been missing. And so they've kind of branded themselves that, that we are bringing back the factory jobs. Where you know you can go ahead and get benefits, and we pay more than you know the average uh, entry level position. Um, but I think what can't be lost within this is first off, just because you're making twelve dollars and you're making a little bump, doesn't make it anywhere close to the living wage. And when your benefits are included or when you have benefits that are relatively more expensive comparison to someone who could be working at like whole, um, actually Whole Foods is own. That's problematic. Yeah, it's problematic. But um, I'm reading, you know, these stories right now where, you know, these guys, these men, women of all ages and all ethnicities, they're coming to the jobs expecting just, you know, work and expecting that full-time check. But the conditions in which they're working under are something that has, you know, it's something that kind of harkens back to days before regulation and um you know the needs for unions to kind of fix things going back to like the triangle fire. I mean, um they have it set up in such a way that unions pamphleteers they're nowhere like allowed near, you know, the Amazon facility. And, you know, okay, sure, they're protecting their best interests, but it's hard to educate the people within that there are certain actions they can do to help unionize together. Um, And so uh, maybe I'll just kind of toss this out to both of you guys. What would a successful union look like for um, Amazon, for Amazon employees? And what would be some things if you were leading that union, um, you would want to, uh, you know, make a demand?
2: So I think it's pretty interesting that you put it in those kinds of terms because it's Um, To my understanding, it's how companies like Amazon were able to exist. Um, Unions and the rights that have been fought for different workers, I mean, they are extensive and they have quite the history. And just looking at the Department of Labor, they discuss wages and hours. They discuss workplace safety and health, workers' comp, and even unions. But specifically, you know, when it comes to wages and hours, I think that's generally what's the hot topic. Um, We're referring to conditions, which is, I think, the perspective of wage and hours that goes missed. Um, So, -hmm. for instance, Amazon is clearly following the Fair Fair Labor Standards Act. So it prescribes standard wages, overtime pay. It affects most private and public employment. um, And it's administered by the wage and hour division. And long story short, it just guarantees that you're not overworking children who are 16 to 18, um, that's what they classify as children. You're not overworking those categories and you're not hiring them for what is considered a dangerous position. You are paying people overtime when they've reached the credibility for overtime, which is generally 40 hours a week, depending on the institution. And the wage is fair. So the federal minimum has to be met. And then per state, they all have their own minimum as well. So to think a company like Amazon is going to willingly follow with this because it's federal law. They have. I wouldn't be able to go so far as to say they've broken the law in these cases. However, they have exploited a loophole. Um, I think what we'll get into a little bit more is those exact conditions. Yes, you're paying me the right wage, technically, livable or not, a discussion to be had. However, if you're then going to tell me like what was read up on, um, I don't know this young man's name, but there was an undercover reporter at Amazon who discussed multiple football lengths of a factory, and multiple floors, and the bathrooms happen to be on either end of this factory. Everyone's logging your time, making sure you see how much someone's on or off their machine or their station. And for him, in the middle of the floor, on the fourth floor, to go to the bathroom, it's a flight of stairs here, it's a flight of stairs there, there has to be security in and out of the floor. Either you're not stealing data information, you're not bringing anything harmful one way or the next. So... On paper, again, we have Amazon following the rules, but symbolically, they're mistreating their employees to a large extent. If it's going to take me five minutes just to get padded down on the way in and another four on the way out, and then I actually have to go up and down a flight of stairs just to get to the restroom, by the time I come back, it's going to look as though I've just wasted 15, maybe a few more minutes. And Mm -hmm. that's where some of these employees are, are having some hardship. And I think it's important that you bring up unions because it's probably their most um strategic avenue to to take advantage of because unions have rights that maybe one employee isn't aware of or employees themselves are not aware of. And I think that education is large as well. But
1: go ahead. Um well if I was a union leader right now and I unionized Amazon workers, the first thing we'd be doing is going on strike until these conditions mm-hmm. end. I mean like being padded down to go to the restroom. I mean, that's like draconian. That I mean, it's it's honestly frightening. Um yeah. And and that that is okay sort legally, right? Like they're just sort of protecting mm. their investment or whatever language they couch it in. Um but I also think that you can't, you know, sort of separate Amazon from the historical context of their rise. I mean, we're living in a time where, you know, right to work laws are being passed in a bunch of other union busting legislation. And so they're just riding that wave, you know, that we don't need mm-hmm. unionized labor. And I mean, but then again, you talk about AFL-CIO, American unions, that's a whole nother question. I mean, the uh, the current head of the AFL-CIO is, a, you know, avid Trump supporter. And so when the union leader is supporting union busting legislation, you know there's sort of a disconnect. Um, but I also, I mean on the on the question of wages, I mean when you look at like the 1970s and sort of the end of Keynesian economics, like post World War II economics, and you go into this era that we currently live in of neoliberalism privatization, deregulation, all of this. I mean, Amazon is sort of the poster child of neoliberalism, this corporation that's allowed to grow exponentially in terms of profits, yet their wages and the wages of of much of the developed world um, have remained stagnant as profits increase. And so then it's just sort of this you poke a hole in, I mean, I don't know what else to call it besides like bourgeois economics. I mean, you just sort of, and then, well, the, I mean, you know, you said profit and wages, like they go up together. You got all the graphs, you got all the books you got, and then you, but then it's wrong. Right. And so, um, I think Amazon is a corporation of their time. um, Though it's sickening the practices they uh, engage in, they are just playing by the rules, right? And that's the worst playing part. The and so I think that also gets on the question of legality, not equaling morality and and, yeah, and exactly. what workers can do um, even without unionized labor. How can they stand up for themselves? And I think, yeah, oh, sorry. Oh, yeah, please. I was just
0: making that note to our last episode. I mean, we look back at the books. I mean, slavery was allowed. It was morally, ethically repugnant. But it's like, at the end of the day, it was on the book. Um, and so we're kind of seeing, like you said, they're riding that wave of leg- legislation of the strike busting, union busting um, legislation. So I I, I, I I, feel you. So like, what, what can we learn from the past that we can implement today? Carlos. You referenced the
2: past. And um, it's crazy because even if you don't go so far back as slavery, a lot of these rules and regulations that we are fighting to employ and see used for the sake of the employee, they came up even shorter than then when we got through the Industrial Revolution. So like you just said, with the World War Two economics and what we witnessed and the fact that women and children can hop into these factories and work the same way men can. Um, that revolution and how many employees were available to do these kinds of jobs. We saw the unions formed in order to have people not work these extreme 16 hour days because people were comfortable and okay with if I'm getting paid, then I'll stay here and work because there's a, there's a disconnect between you understanding, all right, me being paid and me being treated properly. And I think we're kind of getting back to that because here's Bernie fighting for better wages and on overall campaign generally, and we have workers who are thinking they're being paid well because it's better than what others are offering, and yet their outcome remains the same. They're still being either overworked or disrespected in their workplace. Um, One of the first things you'll hear when you refer to the Industrial Revolution is that these employers were allowed to, because it was legal, to set the wages as low as they wanted because people were willing to work for them. Um and I think that's where we get right back to that point, legality versus morality. If it's legal for me to pay you seven fifty an hour and then pay you that and a half for every hour you go over 40 hours this week, the likelihood that you make it on your day to day still really slim. But as a business owner, you are the best employee that I could have. You're at the mm-hmm. price point, and I am not breaking the law. So again, unions play an important role because, like you said, if Hannah mentioned If the unions were to go on, if these Amazon workers were to go on strike, um, we have seen a massive Internet server get shut down due to the influx of shopping that occurred on Black Friday. If the workers decided this Thanksgiving that they are not going to work and that no one is going to receive their Christmas presents on time, the economic strife within the holiday season in the United States of America would cause something to happen. Like without a doubt, mm. someone is going to either address their needs or if not address them directly, find a way to, to um, abate them at the very least in order to get through the holiday season. I mean, these workers don't recognize the fact that they are the ones holding this power. But symbolically, when you look at my paycheck and you look at a multi-billionaire like Bezos, what one employer or one union alone is going to think that they have a shot? So yes, yeah. it's, it's definitely important to recognize their their power within the whole scheme.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I, I think it, it takes that um, you know that's what what is it to be encouraged you know to like take that first step and kind of fight the giant you know master that holds the whip I guess in that sense. Um, and I wonder you know what role does the consumer play? I mean, can we fairly expect the uh, you know the workers to strike? And I love that idea you know if they just all just took Prime Day off. That's literally the equivalent of saying if Santa got sick on Christmas Eve. I mean, literally, as far as Internet retail would go, if, if that were to happen, um, what, I mean, you would definitely get people's attention. Um, what would the response be? I mean, I, I, I'd really be interested in seeing that uh, fold out. And as a consumer, you know, is it, it, my, you know, me wanting to grab these deals because I'm also affected by this consumerism I mean, we're all kind of drinking the same Kool-Aid. I mean, and it's all kind of connected. It's all stacked. And it's hard, like you say, to kind of have one person emerge from the bunch to, you know, challenge, you know, the massive wealth of a corporation that that's, you know, that's worth as much as Bezos is.
1: Yeah, and I think that's why you got to keep the bunch together. And I think that's why strikes work. You know, it's not about the individual in that case. It's about the individuals coming together to collectively bargain and to collectively assert that we could absolutely shut down Black Friday in terms of online yeah. sales, right? And when you look at it that way and you, you truly see that the workers have the power, I'm going to go on a little Marxist thing. And, um, you know, so the the workers truly have the power to to shut down these major corporations. And that is exactly... The power that people like Bezos and other mega corporations, CEOs etc are afraid of because the the thin facade that has been set up to prevent workers from understanding that they have this power is exactly the wage question that Collis was just talking about. If you are paying above the prevailing wage, yet you're still Treating your workers like shit. It, it puts them in a false. You know binary. Where it's like okay. I could go make minimum wage here. And be treated like shit. Or I could make a little bit more money. And still be treated like shit. Most people are going to take the more money. And sort yeah. of not forget about the fact. That they're being treated like shit. But. You got to do what you got to do to survive. Yeah, and yeah. when you're constantly put in a position of um, choosing the lesser of two evils, and I mean, and this gets into politics as well. When you're persistently only offered two shitty choices, when do you step forward on your own and say, "No, there are other choices," and and I think that's what we're seeing with. Workers that are rallying, you know, going on strike about health care, about pension funds, about all of it. Right. Like, I mean, teachers are on strike. Nurses are on strike. You know, it seems like. And it's never covered in the news, right? That all these strikes are going on right now. You have to go to like Democracy oh. Now! or other independent media sources. So, um, Workers and especially in a situation like Amazon have the power to shut down giant spectacles such as Black Friday. But raising that consciousness and getting those workers to the point of that knowledge um, is the hardest part. Because what's going to happen when Amazon workers go on strike? They're going to send in scabs. They're They're
0: going to bring. They're going to
1: send in the police to break the strikes. You know, and then solidarity strikes are illegal. So other people who want to raise the awareness and and spread the word, they can't do a solidarity strike or else they all lose their jobs. So it then prevents you from realizing your, uh, what's the word, your solidarity uh, Mm -hmm. with your fellow worker, whether they're another Amazon worker or a Burger King worker or whatever, those organic connections are artificially severed by these corporations offering the lesser of two evils.
2: It brings up the discussion of tolerance and how
1: that mm. verb
2: has been used in different ways. But the more these, empl- Walmart being able to advertise that they pay entry level workers, $11 an hour, that being able to say that as a corporation, as if they were their own world on their own, they're on an Island. Here we mm-hmm. are paying yeah. employees properly. one, that's not proper pay, but people aren't seeing that because there's a litany of other options where it's only $750. So being able to say that as a corporation allows you to make it seem as though they're open and more willing and more willing to treat people. And then when the employees walk through the door and realize, nah, it's all of the same crap, that I'm still being overworked and that when I got pregnant, I still got fired and no one gave a damn or they worked me into my ninth month of my uh, of what ultimately became a miscarriage... They're not putting these two things together early enough because they're tolerant because they've heard that they're earning more. So Mm. I think it almost it it can arc in, in two different ways. A business using that wage, discussing wages as a method of tolerance, because even if you pay me exactly the amount of money that I feel is worthwhile, that I can live on my own, it still doesn't give an employer the right to disrespect their employees, treat them poorly, overwork them, whatever the case may be. But yet, whenever these politicians come up with that discussion, we seem to kind of gloss over it. Bernie Sanders is chasing after proper wages, but yet that entire Stop Bezos Act doesn't really address the workplace conditions. when yet the two should be worked together one in the same. I don't understand how you're going to bring up the topic of paying me better as though that also assumes you're treating me better. Um, you look at a lot of, um, hardworking people today and you look at the sacrifices they make for the sake of their check. Where does my line of tolerance fall? Why does my check and how much money I make have to be in line with how many sacrifices I make rather than the merit of my work. So it becomes very interesting.
1: Well, yeah. And I mean, the, the manufactured complacency is what allows people to such working conditions. Um, and again, it's an artificial tolerance because it's a, every step of the process is coercive. Number one, and is also saying, well, we're better than this guy. We're better than this other business that you you know may have worked for um and it really limits the horizons of workers to then say something like you just said to bernie sanders like okay the bezos act is great but we need higher pay we need health care we need this we need that right like none of these issues can be separated from one another um because if you're not getting paid, right, then you're not making yeah. enough money to pay for the health care. You're not making enough to put in a 401k, right? You're not making enough to pull yourself up by the bootstraps because your bootstraps are cut pretty short from the get-go. If you're poor, if you're an immigrant, you know, uh, you name it. Um,
0: so there's two things I want to note. Um bouncing off your your, both of you guys points of discussion first we always see in history the the deployment of scabs you know people to come in for strike busters um you know getting paid you know whenever someone strike they usually bring in a population who could really use the work and um go ahead jump on that now i was i think me and Carlos read the both um the same undercover amazon worker interview he worked there for six months and um very harrowing you know what you're hearing but one thing he noted being a consistent was that like you know these were the jobs that are being employed but like um some people like the eastern european population and like some of these people who are literally fleeing you know russia i mean abject poverty i mean they're the ones that are willing you know throughout history you know people who are at the very lowest of you know the economic scale they're more willing to put up with those jobs And even their response to the conditions in which Amazon is putting uh, employees under have been less, you know, in line with those of history where you got, you know, some employees working for. um, I mean, we can look at like some of the um, Hispanic labor that's going on in Southwest America. Um, We can look at, I mean, just how, you know, during uh, Ireland, we talked to this is Cedric Robinson, um, how some of the Irish workers had a higher tolerance for the work. Um, Just because, you know, hey, you know, that was just how to get on with it. Let's just get, you know, get to the end of the day. Um, But even it's taking a demand on that certain population, which I mean, that historically has kind of filled, you know, that need for that really demanding labor, the jobs no one else want. That takes a demand on that. And listening to college speak, you know, they, they push this tolerance on, Um, you know, we pay $11 an hour. And I guess just a little psychological aspect. When you're an employee or a prospective job inner, you know, want to get this job at Walmart, you're at a position where you're not. I'm not gonna say desperate, but you are looking for a job. You have bills. You have to keep a roof over your head. You got to kind of, you know, do this thing which is called existence out here. And so when you see that, it, it lets you know that okay, I'm worth eleven dollars an hour. And that's something that the mass, you know, masses of people who are working in these factories they're, they have to, there's they're seeing, they're seeing that shit every, every week, whenever they get their paycheck. Yeah, I did work 40 hours at, you know, $11 an hour. This is, this is essentially what I'm worth. This is what my time is worth. This is what all that is, is worth. And I can use that to expend on myself. And we have, you know, the same parallel with Jeff Bezos when, you know, he has no problem telling other people they're worth $11 an hour. And, Yet all these magazines and the media and the numbers say he's worth $28 million a day. And it's just like, how can that exist on the same spectrum? Like, if I were to chart the difference, how could that even fit to scale? I mean, I mean, in the, and when we see this in like the sports world where a new player sets the market, you know, if he's the best player at the time, we're likely going to overpay him just because, you know, he has that market value. But even at the most extreme cases, the highest paid quarterback who has a contract five times as worth as like maybe the fifth or sixth quarterback rank, he's not five times better than that quarterback. You know what I'm saying? It's just kind of this status quo in which both sides kind of uphold, you know, we accept, you know, on some level that we are worth maybe $11 and we accept he is worth $150 billion. Look at what he created. And so I think if there is to be movement, it has to be the disruption of the those status arguments right there. Um,
2: if you take hey, a yeah, moment, yeah. you just touched on something that I think if people can't grasp this concept on a on a larger scale, like you said, it's kind of hard to see what we're really getting at when someone like Bezos is worth so much and his employers are, work so, are working for so much less. Um, and other people may even get a little bit confused as to why there might be such a large discord. Well, he's the CEO. He's doing all of this. They're just a worker. They're only putting in packages such as this. Um, I think what you just mentioned here, Ed, is the anxiety that people feel when they ask for a raise or the of asking for a raise. If any one of our listeners right now is working and they just adopt the idea, I'm going to ask to be paid $5,000 more per year. That brings such anxiety and stress. And it it can truly break some people down when they feel, wow, I have to walk into my boss's office and ask for this because they have inherently accepted that the money that they've been paid over the past year, two years, three years, whatever, is what they're worth. And then when there finally comes a breaking point, when they feel the need to say, you know what? No, I think I'm worth $5,000 more. They're legitimately afraid to tell the institution that they work for that they believe they're worth $5,000 more. Now you can go and discuss it. And what tends to happen is the, the company or the whoever you may be working for is like, listen, I see that you think you're worth $5,000 more, but from what we can see, you're only worth $3,000 more. And we'll give you that. However, if you didn't go in there and ask to begin with, you wouldn't even have had that opportunity because, hey, yeah, they're worth $3,000 more, but they're not asking for it. So we're making $3,000 more profit. And when that becomes the distance, that's the gap, that's the facade between the workers and the employers. And even greater than that, the company itself and those who allow it to run. So if you want to tell me that Jeff Bezos today takes a couple of days off, $28 million just being blown on his vacations, whatever the case may be, if he decides to show up or to not show up, excuse me, if he decides to disappear for the next six months, Amazon still runs. But if you take away all of those workers for one day, the whole system could crumble in on itself. This is a global entity that is moving around in in ways that even I can't grasp altogether. So like we said, that, that unionization, that ability to strike, understanding one's own worth. But if you really can't grasp the idea of it, just think of what it's like to ask for a raise and the discord between what you think you're worth and what your employer thinks you're worth. And that is what I think the symbolism behind Bernie's act is trying to get at, that there shouldn't be such a just gargantuan difference. There should be some sense of, you know, they're paying me what I believe I'm
1: worth. So, well, and there's, I want to sort of, uh, touch on two things. One thing that Ed said, um, about reproducing norms and how it's often, or not often, but I mean, in conjunction with the oppressor, the oppressed recreates norms situations, etc., cetera. Um, and then I, I want to relate it to what Collis was saying about this idea of self-worth and being able to go into an office and saying, hey, I would like a raise. I mean, so when you have corporations functioning as they do and governments as they do, and so you're in this sort of historical moment that we're in now of, of imperialist capitalism You know, neoliberalism, all of these just sort of social totalities uh, culminating into what they have now, then of course a corporation is going to be a microcosm of the society within which it operates. And so when you're at work being alienated from your labor because there stands a wage and your own worth between you and the thing you've produced, that alienation becomes so acute that you are then when you leave work and the media is reproducing those norms that you should be treated this way, this, that, the other, then you yourself are informed by your external environment to reproduce those norms. And that's what happens when worth and, and one's self worth becomes an object outside of the realm of subjectivity, and that is uh, a, a Marxist concept called reification. Uh, to reify is to elevate uh, ideas or thoughts or objects, and to assign them a a thinghood. Um, mm.
2: And I think you're speaking at what breaks down capitalism generally. Um, You can please go ahead. But again, for people to make this more real, discussing one's job amongst a group of peers and you hear that someone's a big attorney and another person's a doctor and here's an Amazon worker, how does this person feel in that discussion? The fact that they are reflecting themselves as lesser to the doctor and lawyer because of whatever terms that they in their minds have been reproducing themselves. But they're informed day by day by the wages they receive, the conditions they work in, and the media that's constantly re- representing it one way or the next. But
1: please go ahead. Well, yeah. And so, so that's what I sort of meant by the, that a corporation or the inner workings of a corporation will recreate the conditions of the society is that the hierarchies of capitalism are reproduced or rather they're, they're present In the workplace where, I mean, like you said, like Jeff Bezos could go on vacation for three weeks and Amazon would still run. But if all the workers went on strike for one day, Bezos would lose millions of his own personal wealth and the company would lose wealth. And so then it begs the question, well, what does Bezos actually do? Right. And and then it's and then you can start to break down these facades and these barriers that it's like, well, what does the boss actually do? We're the ones creating the wealth as the workers mm-hmm. so we can shut it down. And that is, I believe, um, a segue, if this is appropriate, Ed, into the conversation about Nike and their recent ad with Colin Kaepernick where. Nike as a known abuser of human rights is then creating a campaign with Colin Kaepernick who is speaking about ending police brutality and mass incarceration and what number of racist uh, vestiges of our society. How can Nike sincerely... make that campaign. And and I argue that they can't and that it was a profit motive that drove them to work with Kaepernick. And so if you're commodifying resistance, then that's completely antithetical to helping workers realize that they create the wealth and they are building the society in which we all live. If If you're giving all that responsibility to Nike, who's abusing workers, then what meaning does protest have?
0: That's a load. I mean, I'll be honest with you. Um, Like, you know, like we discussed earlier. Um, yeah, I think, you know, just on the letter of the law, then you look at the book, I mean, you know, they're a known, you know, abuser of, of human rights. Um, and yeah, you know, they, they employ, who they employ for the wages they do, which are not, you know, sustainable, at least anyone in our society. And you know? I'm not going to, you know, challenge that or any way. I just think um, I just think the the numbers match up in such a way, and that their marketing team and the actual campaign that includes Kaepernick it it benefits a lot of people at the expense of others, and it's going to alienate, let's say, someone like myself as an African American who was gun for Kaepernick, wanted him to be reemployed by the NFL, wanted him to continue to dole out his personal money to you know foundations and creating this change, knowing the good work he does. What bothered me most was not the fact that number seven wasn't on the field throwing touchdowns. It was that number seven wasn't getting the same checks he was getting. Because number seven would take those checks and he would break them off, break bread with a lot of people of the community. And so I still think, yeah, I mean, it's it's complicated, you know. And I, I mean, that's that's just the way I kind of you know got to put my lens on it. A lot of these issues I address is just these issues are so much more complicated than we give credence to, you know. I mean, I think. Um, you know, especially like with the Kaepernick ad, I mean, especially, you know, what Nike represents and like what they represented for Serena what they represented for like, um, athletes like Arthur Ashe and Tiger Woods. I mean, it's, it they, I think Nike knew that it was complicated enough that it would still be successful. People buying the Nike Monarchs or, you know, the MAGA hat wearing who wear those, Nikes from Ross and like uh TJ Maxx, they're they were willing to for cut those off. Cause like like we all know, I didn't see any videos, anyone burning no uh, you know, no no Air Maxes. I ain't see no one, you know, ripping the label off, you know, saying they're expensive, you know, Nike joggers. I mean, you know, and so I think the numbers matched up and like the intent and just the way they're able to manipulate everything does put a bad taste in your mouth initially. But when I look at the immediate problem, or at least in my my sphere of influence, knowing that, you know, what's going on in black America is something I've always wanted to see improvement. This is just a, another equal off. And I think a lot of our listeners are going to like have to reckon with that on on some level. Now, with that said, I haven't bought anything from the Nike campaign because it's still complicated and it it it's a lot of money. You know, and a part of me thinks, damn, like, because, you know, if if you're being endorsed, you're only getting a certain percentage of that money and only a certain percentage of that is getting doled off. I could probably make more impact just, you know, investing directly into foundations locally now. Um, you know, so like, I mean, I I want to push back on parts of your argument, but, but not for the fact that it's incorrect. I mean, the numbers are there, but I just think. It's that gray area or less, you know, it's just kind of the reality that Nike knew that it, it was just morally slippery. You know, it's, it's just it's slippery, you know what I'm saying? And so I'm just um interested to see what Collis had to chime in before uh, you jump back on it.
2: So I would have to agree um, with, with honestly with both of you. Like you said, this is extremely nuanced. Um, Nike 100, I would say this, Nike would not have supported Colin Kaepernick. If they weren't going to win financially, Colin yeah. Kaepernick for the past, since he began, since he got kicked out of the NFL or whatever you want to say about this whole Colin Kaepernick scandal, since he last stepped foot on a football field, his jersey has still remained one of the top selling jerseys in the NFL. So Nike's able to step back and see that, listen, there's a profit to be made here. The day they made the announcement, they lost 3.4% of their stock. The day after that, they gained 8.7%. So they're winning. The end goal here is their money and and they're winning. So they chose the side that would produce most money. However, like you were getting at it, Colin Kaepernick isn't currently employed. He's using the money that he had earned in the NFL to good ends. But there's no football, at least not that I'm aware of, other than the fact that he's been sponsored by Nike this entire time. And they've been paying him this entire time. He doesn't have these income flows that he did prior to. So seeing that he would then get thrown onto this ad allows him to create a little bit more income to then pursue these same endeavors. But yet we're also looking at Nike with two sides of the coin. They're abusing people across the world and whoever works for them. And with, this is an example of representation and how people see themselves. When Michael Jordan came onto a basketball court with shoes that weren't allowed, then all of a sudden everybody wanted those shoes the main core of that everybody were those who wanted to be like Mike. And to be perfectly honest, that money wasn't coming from most white hands at the time. Even now, the culture behind those sneakers is, is an ethnic culture. And yet, it's, the odds are in favor that that same culture is the culture who can't afford a $250 pair of sneakers. So mm-hmm. if you really want to say that Nike's for the people, well, you're not going to look at their prices. You're not going to look at their work habits and how they employ people. And yet here they come with an ad that has seems so polarizing and so one way or the next. There's more conversation about this ad and how polarizing it is than a school shooting. So yes, they're engaging in the conversation. Do I think that's important? Yes. But just like when we see a young artist or a young person get harmed or killed and we want to see both sides of it, what's coming to my mind right now, is all the the hearts and tears shed for Tentacion? And don't get me wrong, I was a fan of his music, but I also wanted to see the outcome of multiple charges against beating a pregnant woman. And the death in and of itself allowed for this sense of martyrdom. And people made him a hero right off the jump because he made good music. So looking at Nike and calling them heroes because they backed people like Serena and they backed people like Colin Kaepernick and they stood with Tiger before they heard anything or they knew anything. You can say, okay, all right, that's, that's all well and good, but take the money out of it. The money's not there. And if the money doesn't end up ultimately flowing back to Nike, they don't make these stands. So as a company, there's a gap between me and them. I want to support Colin Kaepernick. So maybe I'll buy a pair of socks, but I don't know if I'm, and I'm definitely not going to be ashamed to show that I'm wearing the Nike symbol, but knowing as a consumer that I'm helping Kaepernick. Is why I made the purchase when it would probably be better for me to just donate directly to Colin Kaepernick's cause, rather than have to go through the middleman of Nike and representing Nike in this big ad. And I see this, I see that. There's a lot of flash there that doesn't actually amount to much. Is Nike endorsing a campaign that will help the same issues Colin Kaepernick has been pursuing? Yeah. Then becomes the question. question: Has Nike put their money where their mouth is? And legitimately supported women's rights behind Serena and the out cause that came out of the USO. US. I don't know if we're seeing that. They're just saying, you yeah, know, no, no, we support them. And in the CEO's office, they're like, yeah, as long as we tweet, we support them. As long as we're willing to clap back at any white supremacists on social media, all of that money is coming our way. No bad press is bad press. So I have to say that as a company, you have to be able to look at all the facts. But as someone who supports Colin Kaepernick, you can't see it as necessarily a bad thing. Just understand when you pay Nike, who is getting that money front fold versus whose ideals or morals you're supporting? I don't want to say I support Nike's ideals, but I do want to say I support Collins ideals. When the two emerged, what does that leave me to do? So it becomes a very nuanced question.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I want to preface my response with, I mean, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. I mean, all... Even the, the, the companies with the best business practices are still exploiting labor, alienating laborers, and not paying a wage that is livable. But I think what's particularly sinister about Nike's campaign is that this is an issue, um, ending police brutality, that has been in the headlines for what, like almost five years now since Ferguson, it's been more and more in the headlines. And so, yeah. and and not that it wasn't an issue before, but it's that yeah, yeah. it is such a pressing issue that people do want to resolve. But Nike is offering the wrong solution. Nike is, and, 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 and they don't have to say it explicitly, which makes it more sinister. They're essentially saying, Oh, we'll keep buying Nike and we'll keep, you know, talking about how these causes are worthy. Um, And, and like Kala said, like, is Nike putting their money where their mouth is based on Mm -hmm. their labor history and their history of labor violations? I'm going to take a wild guess and say, no, you know? Um, and, and in terms of, Kaepernick making money to break bread with black organizations that are doing on the ground work that is um, that much remains true. And though Colin Kaepernick makes and has made an exorbitant amount of money in the NFL, NFL players, much like our friends at Amazon, they're workers. They have their own union you know, they, they make an exorbitant Mm -hmm. amount of money because sports in America are such a spectacle. And that's, I mean, that's another question, but, um, so what then, like, I, I guess I see Kaepernick, I think he was making a much more profound impact kneeling at games and, um, and getting other players to kneel because I mean that is attacking the money. I mean players didn't uh, you know come out for the national anthem until like two thousand and eight or something when they got when the NFL got a contract from the Department of Defense to sort of you know whip up nationalist fervor. So they are attacking the money when they kneel. You know mm-hmm. they are protesting um, in in a valid way, and uh, I just I think that entrusting corporations to make change when corporations are the ones causing the situation where change needs to be made is a slippery slope. And I,
2: I would question you right there though. However, that I agree 100% do those same corporations have the opportunity or the ability to make enough of that difference. So for instance, if Nike just dumped millions of dollars behind uh, Kaepernick's campaign, as in Nike or as in Colin Kaepernick endorses Nike instead of the other way around, would that create the change we're looking for? Could Nike put enough money into a lobbying group to see a law pass? Could Amazon put enough behind or Elon Musk put enough behind whatever initiative in politics to see the type of changes that collectively i don't know Mm -hmm. if we're necessarily seeing yet i think that raises a really important um kind of confusing question i I really don't know but as you mentioned that that i that's the thorn that steps out in my mind
1: well so when I'll, i'll take jeff bezos as an example so recently like as maybe not in in response but this is sort of uh the the events were very close together um so this Journalist goes into Amazon works for six months. Does this undercover work talks about the horrible, horrible conditions. At the same time, Jeff Bezos is starting some nonprofit that gives like a certain amount of money to houseless people. Mm-hmm. You see, I, I don't think that any corporation no matter if they just liquidate completely and they're like, you know what, take our entire endowment and fight police brutality. I'm still not cheering for Nike. And, and that's just my opinion on the matter. But you do raise a good point where it's like, well, what if Nike did put their money where their mouth is? Um,
0: yeah. yeah. I, I want to jump on that idea because, you know, and like, Especially like I would never hear the words uttered from Hannah's mouth that, I mean, he supports any type of corporation ever. I mean, just as like, you know, just from your, your beliefs. Um, but what I, I wonder, you know, we see this on the far left with, uh, you know, the American Legal Exchange Council or ALEC. A lot of people found out about it, including the host of this show through um, Ava DuVernay's 13th. Um, which is pretty much all these giant conserve, you know, giant corporations pooling their money together to ensure that they can lobby, you know, laws that keep, you know, that are regressive, regressive laws or stop, you know, um workers' rights and worker um you know conditions improving. Where's the response on the on the right? You know, like, I mean, what 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 is the counter to Alec? And I think that's such a. Pointing idea, like if Nike were to put money where their mouth is or money where their spokesperson is, um, like we understand the tragedy of American politics is that money can determine the presidency. Money determines what legislation gets considered. Money determines how America works. And that is the, that is the evil of it. However, where's the opposite response? How, okay, If that's the rules of the game and that kind of goes back to this idea that there are rules everyone's playing with. Um, you know, if 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 a if a organization like Alec is allowed to influence and lobby laws, where's the other side of it? Like, if Nike was really about it, wouldn't they have their own lobbying exchange, maybe with a progressive like a uh, Patagonia or something? Like, just giant corporations, retailers, could what could they do? You know, and I think the issue that 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 that, that I'm I'm starting to see now with um with Hannah's idea um is just the uh, I mean. They still Nike benefits from the fact that companies like Alec or, you know, the legal exchange council is stopping workers' rights. I mean, they can get all of the fanfare, they can get all the cookies in the world, but they necessarily don't want to see too much change in like um in fair labor laws. I mean, and so like I'm with you, and I think it's that same, you know, cringiness we felt when Pepsi had that god awful. Um, was it Kylie Jenner commercial where a Pepsi was able to stop a, a, a police attack or like a riot I mean so I'm with you on that because you know I, there's no way Nike could really put their money where their wealth is unless they're legitimately against their own interests and, and that's
2: where the issue like, becomes because now you have perverse incentives there's no manners and I think that's the answer right there I think therefore Hannah you, you must be correct
0: because yeah,
2: if you grow to that size. If you grow to yeah. particularly the size of Nike or Amazon or any of these, but just generally, if you manage to gain that much influence, you you've probably done some shady things. And if you begin to in incorporate this this narrative of equality or this narrative of fairness or whatever the case may be, like we said, we found that there was money behind it. And if you took the money out of it. There's no narrative. I mean, there's no reason for Nike to get involved. So I think you're right. It does answer. Even if instead of liquidating, Nike or Amazon, any one of these companies decided to put a good amount of their income yearly towards the most fair and necessary. Whatever they do, the lobbyist group that they form that enters politics, it's going to chase equal rights for police brutality. It's going to chase equal rights for this, that and the next. But it is definitely going to downplay workers' wages, overtime, workers' comp, benefits, whatever interests that benefit the company. Because why does this lobbyist group exist? Because of the company. Why does the company exist? Because it's making money. We want the company to continue to exist, so it needs to continue to make money, keep paying them low wages. And then whatever laws do get put through, find the loophole that we can make enough money off of each head that works on our factory floor. Because now we're serving yeah. the globe. Now it's not just the next door neighbor. Now it's not just Michael Jordan who needs a pair of sneakers. It's all of urban America. I mean, it's it's when this capitalistic monster feeds on itself, people are getting harmed. And even if those companies decide to help some of who might be harmed, they're never going to help everyone. There's no chance.
1: Well, yeah. And I mean, and I think with, with Alec... Um... It really proves. Uh, I just sort of rediscovered this quote as we were uh, doing this episode by Antonio Gramsci. He says the, the historical unity of the ruling class is realized in the state. And so when you talk about the ruling class, so the, the, the bourgeoisie, right, it's not just the government officials that are making money from these packs. It's these corporations that are making these packs to give the politicians money. Right. They're all on the same team. And because they have the power and the resources at their disposal, it allows for a class solidarity among the rich. And I think that's why you don't see, uh, like Ed would say, like you don't see a backlash on the right because they don't need a backlash. They've got the government, you know, like they, yeah. they've got the game by the balls and they're just controlling it. And uh, uh, that was sort of a- gendered thing. I didn't really like it. Um, anyway, but, uh, uh, but you know what I'm saying? Um, so they're all on this, this same team. And so when you're in the yeah. position of a worker, that solidarity is so much harder to achieve because you're told that you're in competition with your fellow worker rather than because you want to make a living for yourself and under capitalism, that means alienating from others, mm. um, and and uh, and and also yourself. I mean, there is a, a, a deeper philosophical question about alienation in labor, but um, but but yeah, I think uh, I think with Alec really, really just is a crystallization of yeah. the the death knell of our democracy it's the the final nail in the coffin so yeah and it
0: would take the money getting out of politics to really i mean really see democracy take some type of form it would take the um you know the re, we got to get you know voter populations like 2.3 million incarcerated 6 million of uh, felons they have to have the right i mean right to vote i mean there's so many ways in which the loopholes have just kind of been turn into malicious black holes and any hope when he's kind of sucked through. Um, and so, you know, I, as we, you know, wrap up the show, I think, um, I think we, we, can finally consider the extent in which, you know, the game, the name of the game is just to make that money. Right. You know, and Bezos, as Kyle is beautifully put, and, you know, I love that analogy. He could go away for six months and Amazon was still accrue wealth. He will still be worth 28 million more dollars than he was the day before. Um, and I just want to go back to that skyscraper metaphor. You know, like he sits at the top on the hundredth, 150 billionth floor, right? But it would take a realization that his, you know, if you take the top floor off that building, you know, it's still going to be, you know, 150, you know, stories high, 149. But if you take a hundred floors out, if you gut out the electricity, if you take out the gas and energy, keeping that structure up, I think Kyle has said it himself, it crumbles. And so, you know, that's kind of one role into, you know, the Amazon question. And then Nike, yeah, I'm, yeah, it's kind of like, I, I hate to see them get credit for something that, that was a purely financially motivated move. Now, the one, it has its impact. I mean, there is, we all understand the power media has and seeing Kaepernick back on TV during half, man. Uh Kaepernick back on TV in the halftime of you know, Sunday night football, that has an effect. And that is a message to the NFL owners. And I think for morale of the players who are the workers in the NFL, greater question. And Richard Sherman has been on record at least three times saying it's going to be a lockout. He's organizing rapidly that there will be a strike because there's so many things that need to improve. And um, this kind of goes back to my argument last year, which I hated the way I phrased, you know what I'm saying? I think I said the NFL boycott is stupid. And that was the actual term. I, I said it. I owned it. But that wasn't the, always the intention of what I was saying. My whole argument was just on the fact that the workers, you know, it has to be a worker-led movement. And as much as we consume TV, we're not the ones catching touchdowns. We're not the one making plays. And if you want, if you want a successful boycott, that being an empty stadium, you would need – An empty locker room meaning workers stop working now that's a conversation i think is kind of you know faded and you know we can rehash that but I, i i think you know less you know power has to be vested into these corporations for you know their moral stance you know i mean we can't keep treating you know these corporations as people themselves because they operate on the this on just feeding off the livelihood and the sweat and the labor of the people that work under them But that's the sad reality of what we see today. You know, I mean, the argument can be made that corporations today have, you know, the same rights, the same dignity, the same response from the government as a valued person. And a valuable person is just the fuel for the, the, the machines themselves to keep running. And so we see who's in bed, you know, who democracy's in bed with, and it's in with the money. And I mean, there's so many motivations to it. I love how we unpacked the Bezos Act. I mean, are we going to give Senator Bernie, you know, are we going to give Bernie Sanders a cookie for that, for coming up with this legislation that kind of gets his name back in the, in the, um, you know, keep him, you know, politically relevant without really addressing the need for more wages in those, you know, I mean, we love, I love Bernie. I think we all, you know, have our feelings, but I think, you know, Bernie, we like Bernie, especially compared to like what we're seeing today, but that's kind of what we're trying to do at the palace. Thought we're, complicating things. Like understand there's a veil in which everything is presented to you. And so um the way we try to unpack that is just go through the research, just think out loud. I mean, you saw firsthand how we were able to come to an agreement on um a shared perspective on um you know especially on the Nike question. And so, you know, I guess the final, you know, um they, they tell you just do it. You know, <laughs> Nike's just like don't don't worry, you know, what's in your face and, you know, you just gotta do it. Well, uh you know, I always had this joke, you know, Nike could invest millions of their you know, wealth into, you know, at-risk youth, but then they would have to do it. And that means they would have to admit to the fact that they're going against legislation that benefits their wealth, that keeps their executives paid. And this is the trouble of society, why the wealth gap is what it is and widening at the rate that it is. I mean, it doesn't necessarily matter if it's an executive of a corporation or an executive of an academic institution. I mean, on both spheres, whether it was colleges and universities and corporations, executive pay has gone through the roof and it's neglected. You know, I mean, the professors aren't making the money they used, you know, had once made. And so um, I think it takes a realignment of focus and, coming back to that understanding of your worth and that everyone is worth more than just a dollar amount we're worth more than 11 dollars an hour you know um and no one is worth 150 billion dollars either no one is worth any you know financial you know like uh moniker to that and so what are, you know what are we worth you know i think that's kind of the giant question you know just self-worth and i think you have to pin yourself to these values and to your beliefs into to you know your research until your information to really come to an actualization of like, man, okay, this is who I am. Give a damn what the salary say. Give a damn what the headline say. This is you know the way I carry myself in society. Now, maybe that's a little too um, maybe that's a little too Nirvana esque, but you know I think that has to be the end goal, especially in society as a uh, ravaged by you know the the issue of corporations taking the lead as this moral authority behind that
2: is that that's exactly what Colin kaepernick did (laughs) he took he took the opportunity to say that this is what i am worth i'm not gonna play for or i'm not gonna stand for something that doesn't seem to recognize what i am worth and what people who look like me are worth and that's where the the crazy nuance and psychosis break happens when all of a sudden nike picks him up but like you said, yeah. figuring out your worth, your own self worth, figuring out what your labor is worth, um, the distance between myself and my labor. There's a lot of uh, philosophical steps to be taken to understanding why a corporation is willing to pay what they pay and why someone's willing to accept
1: that pay.
0: Yeah. And so with that, um, with it, did you have anything else you want to drop on this, Henna? Well, on your-
1: I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, the importance, I think, of. Certainly this this show and and also just doing your own thinking and your own research is that if you allow these corporations to make moral positions for you, then, of course, those moral positions are going to be infinitely fungible and they're never going to be in your benefit. They're always going to be in the benefit of capital. Um, So uh, that's all I really had to add. But but this was a a good episode.
0: Yeah, no, this felt good. It definitely heated up towards the end. um, When we started talking, the Nike question... Um, so yeah, you know, if you like this show, you know, please rate subscribe email to a friend I'd rather you share the show through email these days. Just let people someone in your class Let your professor know and um, you know Let them send them directly to my inbox so that they can challenge half the things I said and they can rip me apart I don't care like i'm encouraged to learn, you know, what different information and ideas out there floated and you know We're confident we you know, we stand by everything we say, um uh, uh, I, I could do you that favor, uh, Hannah. If you want me to chop the, the testicles off the, the or oh, uh, I remember you said something about like you know, got about the testicles. Yeah. I, mean, I, I can edit that out, yeah. That, that
1: I, sounds I, good, I, yeah. I just felt like that was too much of a uh like a general like phrase.
2: He, his apology, if you keep his apology in there, it was so well timed, it let me go, and then he caught it so so gracefully. <laughs> okay, cool. I'd, I'd be fine with that as
1: well.
0: All right, cool. I just want to get that note out there. Um, but yeah, we do stand by everything we say and um, we're always, you know, we're thinkers in progress. Um, And, you know, I guess it's to be determined, you know, the fate of our democracy, the fate of uh, corporations. I mean, if there's anything to be learned, you can't don't let someone define your position for you. You know, I've been scheduled into other people's time because I didn't know what I wanted to use my time. And I became a part of someone else's calendar. We all got calendars. Some of your calendars say you got to wake up, punch into Amazon. You got to work, you know, 40 hours on your feet. You got to keep a urine bottle near you because you can't make that five minute walk to the bathroom on the fourth floor. Some of you are waking up, it's waking $28 million a day, not worried about shit, except when you can colonize Mars. We all got different calendars. And so own your calendar, own the fact that you are a day. Um, and uh, you want to jump on that? You're rocking back and forth. Okay, cool. Own the fact that, you know, you have, everyone got their own calendar and um, find the people, you you know, you in the same, uh, in the same boat and find that solidarity, find people who are alike and build towards something that you'll be proud of. And if there's anything that we can be salvaged from uh, Nike You know, if you got an idea, man, you just got to do it and just make sure you be confident in that. Um, and just make your own decisions, be aware of other people's calendars and own your own time because other people, as the emphasis of this episode is show, will place a value on your time that is mm, very much well under what it's actually worth. So, um, as always, guests, you know, saying thank you for stopping by the palace, um rate, you know, rate the show, subscribe. You can stay as long as you like, take what you will, but please leave the place clean for the next visitor. I want to give a big shout out to Kalis and Hanaid. Um, they've definitely, you know, brought the power, um, into the palace and, um, like everyone, you know, like I say, just be on your way traveler and, uh, get back to your days. Thank you for tuning in everybody. All right, we are, all right, we're good.